This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, how you fare after a heart attack may depend on where you live, climate change and your mental health. The difficulty doctors can have in one of the most basic questions they have to answer when a patient approaches them under voluntary assisted dying legislation. How do you know whether someone has only six months to live? And a long and controversial debate, which we've covered before in the health report, about whether there's a disproportionate amount of money spent on healthcare in the last year of life. The debate is usually framed around whether there's a lot of futile, potentially harmful and expensive care being given. But the fact is, you're often pretty sick before you die, and there are also people who have almost no care before they die. And even if money is spent, the real question is about appropriateness. The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare has tried to unpick the data on this, and the headline is dramatic. Spending on health services is 14 times higher in the last year of life compared to other years of life. Richard Jukes is head of the Population Health Group at AIHW. Welcome to the Health Report, Richard. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Which health services did you look at for these data? Yes, in scope of our study was spending on public hospital admitted patient services, public hospital emergency department services, uh, medical services subsidised by the Medicare Benefits Scheme and prescription pharmaceuticals covered by the PBS. So that would cover chemotherapy, for example, and cancer? That's right, it would. It would cover the majority of health expenditure, but that does leave out some, you know, some things that would be significant, ambulance services, aged care, that sort of thing. Now, there were some surprises here because averages hide a lot. So it's dramatic, 14% higher, 8% of total spending in the last year of life. Um, now, and it's not necessarily what you think when you look at specifics. For example, the older you are, the less is spent. The uh, overall spending increases with age until about 60 and then decreases when people are older than that. And it might be that it uh, confounds a bit with um, residential aged care services, which uh, we might get into later because that does have an impact on how much is spent. But a really striking thing is if you look at the ratio, that is, so people who are younger have very little health expenditure on them normally, but a lot if they're dying. Whereas um, those two numbers come much closer together. So it's 14 times for the overall comparison, but for someone aged, say, 10 to 19, it's more than 40 times, and for someone aged over 80, it's only about three times. And and that's what we might as well talk about it now, and that's because they're in aged care and they're getting care that's more appropriate, or what's the story there? So aged care definitely had an impact. Exactly unpicking it is, um, is hard to do and might take some further work, but um, basically if... For people who are in res use residential aged care in their final year, their expenditure on health services in their last year was 27% less than other people of a similar age who weren't in residential aged care when they died. Now, there were a lot of people who spent almost nothing, and those are people with sudden death, presumably. Um... That's right. Um, younger people, but yeah, most strikingly people who died from um, suicide, for example. But even then, 90% of people had some contact with the health system. And the other thing to recognise is that there might be other community mental health or other services that people accessed that weren't in the scope of this study. Let's look at it by disease and cause, because the highest cost was for people with advanced cancer in the last year of life. 
That's right. We looked at the 20 uh, most common specific causes of death in Australia and all the ones at the top of the list for um, health expenditure in their final year were different sorts of cancer. Is colorectal cancer on top, followed by breast cancer and um, prostate cancer. And so that's that's a range of what forty thousand a year down then that year down to what twenty four thousand or something like that. That's right. Yes. So it's cancer which attracts a lot of the attention here, because there's there's the well, it's not really a joke, but it's you know it said what you know why uh, do coffins have nails uh, to stop the oncologist giving another round of chemo? Um, the the question is appropriateness. Yeah. So that's um, that's obviously a very important question. Um, it's hard to unpick from a big comprehensive study like this. I mean, hopefully this bringing together this data and starting to be able to look at how it all fits together is a first step. I think uh, a further step would be to look at the sort of um, patterns of pathways that different people go through and see um, you know, whether there are specific patterns um, for different age groups, for different demographics and so forth, and start to get a better understanding of where there might be disparities. But um, obviously there's a lot of interpretation in terms of um, you know, whether an individual is getting the appropriate care. Which you haven't been able to unpick. I mean, one way you could do that is by looking at emergency departments and uh, visits to emergency departments um, because they might be a sign that the person has not necessarily been appropriately looked after because they're having to phone up the ambulance and go into ED. Yeah, yeah that would be um, So what did your ED data one, one show you? One part of the picture. Um, uh, once again, it showed that um, the people in... Uh, where are we? That, uh, yeah, people in residential aged care services were less likely to use ED um, services in their final year. Uh, so that uh, possibly is a suggestion that uh, people in residential aged care are getting the sort of um, ongoing attention and sort of uh, more fundamental level primary care that might um, improve that. And, for example, in cancer, I mean, it's said that there's an overuse of ED in people with cancer. Yeah, I'd have to, um, I'd have to look more deeply into the data to see um, what was happening there. But um, really, the, it's the admitted patient services that are the ones that are really strongly driving the um, high cost of cancer services in the last year of life. So you see a lot of uh, throwing on of ashes and renting of clothes when people talk about, when doctors talk about, or at least epidemiologists and healthcare and health system people talk about the last year of life, that there's a huge problem here, we've got to deal with it. It's not, it's, you know, there's a disaster here because we're spending so much money on the last year of life, which people may not want or need. Have, have you identified a burning deck here? Well, I'd have to say, uh, well, 8% shows that um, clearly there is intensive use of health services in the final year of people's life. In previous um, numbers I've heard quoted based on sort of smaller and less comprehensive analysis often had higher numbers than that. So in the one sense, it's... Um, it's not quite as extreme as, um, as you know, some previous estimates that I'd heard. And residential um, aged care might not be the disaster that you read about every day of the week. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interpretations of, um, of why uh, people in residential aged care um, might be getting less services. They do use more pharmaceutical services, which um, has, you know, could have positive or negative aspects, you know, whether that's a part of a better primary care or whether that's... Um, a problem. Sort of, uh, yeah, a problem. And, so, uh, but, 
So what are your main takeaways? I'd say that um, one of them is definitely that um, it's just exciting to be able to bring this data together. I mean, due to the fragmented nature of health services and health data in Australia, it's just really hard to get a full picture of a person's health journey. We look at health statistics in terms of a disease and how many people it affects or you know, how busy a hospital is and things like this. It's exciting to finally uh, bring the data together and uh, see the actual pathways of individuals engaging with the health system. And have a more rational discussion. Richard, thanks for joining us. No worries, thank you. Richard Jukes is head of the Population Health Group at the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. And if you're wondering what the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare does, it really is role is really to gather statistics and analyse them, the data, bring it all together in the health and welfare sectors. You're listening to The Health Report. This idea of futile care in the last year of life has been one of the drivers for voluntary assisted dying legislation across Australia, where people with a limited life expectancy can have a choice about their death against a background of unrelieved suffering. But that assumes eligibility. The threshold criterion is that the person is expected to die within weeks and usually not more than six months. How on earth, though, does the doctor assess this, especially when the pressure from the person and their family might be high? A paper out today in the Medical Journal of Australia predicts that many doctors are going to find this hard. One of the authors is Dr Belinda Kiley. Welcome to the Health Report, Belinda. Thanks for inviting me on, Norman. What's the status? Just bring us up to date. Which states and territories have it? How many acts are in place and, 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 and operating So I think all the states now, so not the territories, but the states in Australia have acts approved. They haven't all started, but I think in the next 18 months, we're going to see all states having their acts starting and people will actually be able to access voluntary assisted dying. So you're getting in ahead for at least most of Australia. I think Victoria's on the road, isn't it? Absolutely. They've been doing it for some time now. Um, So they've got the most experience in this. Now, all have this six-month criterion, as far as I'm aware, and some have 12 months, particularly for neurodegenerative conditions like, um, like motor neuron disease. That's right. So each state actually has different wording for their criteria, but broadly speaking, across the states, I think most of them are suggesting that for at least for cancer patients to be eligible, someone should be expected to die within six months. And this is really on a balance of probabilities, Well, that's where it comes down. That's where it gets a bit difficult because I think the question is how certain should a doctor be that an individual will die within that specified time frame of six months or 12 months? Um, And I think that I guess we can't be 100% accurate with estimating survival. And so is is 50% enough? Is 70% accuracy enough? That's kind of what the difficulty is going to be. Now, you've looked at the pool data in this area, particularly with advanced cancer, which has suggested that experts are not that good at prognosis. Well, we've looked at um, studies where patients with advanced cancer have been enrolled and oncologists have estimated their life expectancy when they've been enrolled. And from that, we've sort of had over a 1,000 patients and we've looked at when the doctor estimated survival as less than six months. And when that's the case, we see about 70% of people actually do 
die within six months. So I think that doctors are actually pretty reasonable at estimating when someone will die within six months, but it's just is that 70% enough? Um, 30% of people were living longer than six months. Is that okay? Or do we need it to be more sort of precise? Do we want 90% of people dying within that six-month time frame? Doctors traditionally are scared of the law. Does so, the, and you've said the legislation doesn't really help them with certainty. And within that, those data you just quoted, there's a pretty big range. Some people will die within a couple of weeks. Some people will actually live longer than six months. Definitely. So I think I mean we have done a lot of research in ways to estimate and explain survival time to patients with advanced cancer, and we give that information as three scenarios, worst case, typical and best case scenarios. And when a doctor estimates someone's survival time, what they're often thinking of in their head at least is what's the median survival of a group of similar people. And if they estimate someone's survival as six months, then we know that actually about 50% of similar people will die within six months, but at the same time, there's going to be 10% who will live longer than 18 months and 10% who will live a much shorter time. So there's a broad range of survival times. I mean, the core question here is, I mean, it sounds awful to say it, but does it matter? Well, I think that's an important question. Because it, it, once, be... once they've gone through voluntary assisted dying, you'll never know. You won't. Um, and, and I it's think like also, unlikely a coroner is going to dig it up and bring it through. <laughs> I would hope not. Um, and I think that the other important criteria here is obviously it's someone who's got a terminal diagnosis and they've got intolerable suffering. So they've got to meet those criteria. And then it's just this um, survival expectation that is the other eligibility criteria. I think my point is just that it would be nice if there was a little bit more um, consistency in the terminology and also maybe a little bit more specific about that probability um, is that we're looking for people who are very likely to die or absolutely going to. Like I think the wording just could be, um, I guess, tightened up. And what we would say is that probably what we're thinking of in this situation would be that we want people who um, are looking at a life expectancy of estimated by their doctor of two months, which would mean 90% would actually die within six months. So if a doctor thinks your survival time is two months, that would probably mean 90% of the time you're going to die within six months. And that's probably what I think would be reasonable. But that would exclude a lot of people who are suffering. Um, well, I think that in Victoria, I guess that's sort of the group that they are seeing. So I think that they're I mean, they're not actually looking at what the doctor estimates survival as. I think they're just saying it's less than six months and that kind of meets the criteria. So it would be interesting to see what they actually estimated in months. But we think it would be the people who have an estimated survival of two months. And that means their best case scenario for survival would be six months. Um, and that's probably the group that I think would be sort of most most eligible for this. And finally and briefly, is there science to help here? Is there a, can, does science enter prognosis? Can, are there criteria you can use to say, hmm, or is it just, you know, in my experience, you're in that group? Yeah, we, we use experience, definitely that's a big thing. Also clinical trials, so trials where people are having treatment and followed for survival. You can see how long people live. There's also registry data of patients who have been diagnosed with cancer. So not trial patients, but just sort of population-based data that follows people for survival. So there is a lot of information available and there's also different prognostic calculators that can be used. So there are tools available, but I think it is just going to be a bit tricky for doctors to say, 
how certain do they need to be that someone will die within that six-month criteria to be eligible. Um, so it will be interesting to see when this does become um, open in, across all the states how it goes. Belinda, we'll keep tr- tr- in touch with you over that. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Norman. Dr Belinda Kiley is a Senior Research Fellow at the NHMRC Clinical Trial Centre at the University of Sydney. If you're unlucky enough to have a heart attack, you'd hope that wherever you were, you'd get the best care possible. Unfortunately, this isn't always the case. And among the many factors that come into play is where you live, specifically how rich or poor your area is. That's according to recent research involving Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute researcher Jonathan Shaw, who I spoke to earlier. We wanted to know what happens to people after being in hospital for a heart attack from myocardial infarction, in particular the outcomes in regard to whether or not people were readmitted for heart trouble or for anything else and for whether or not they survived. And to look at that by some of the important risk factors that are known to be associated with those outcomes, being whether or not they have diabetes, male or female, and in particular, the socioeconomic status. And then to try and unpick that and try and find out if there are differences between groups. Can we explain it in terms of the way that people have been treated during the original admission or afterwards? And what did you find? Some of it was very expected. We found that, of course, older people, people with diabetes, and has been reported many times before, people from more disadvantaged areas all did worse in terms of the likelihood of being readmitted or the, the likelihood of surviving. Interestingly, when we then looked at how people were treated during and just after their admission, we saw that for some of these risk factors, particularly for diabetes, it did look like there was efforts being made to overcome this problem in that there was more likelihood of being on medications that we know that are preventative for further heart trouble and certainly at least as many people getting bypasses and angioplasties and stents which keep their blood vessels open if they had diabetes but for those people who were from more disadvantaged areas there really seemed to be a shortfall in the proportion of people who had this sort of life-saving intervention, such as a bypass operation. And that really seems to be something that is a problem that we face and something that is an opportunity to do something about to improve outcomes for people. When you're talking about socioeconomic disadvantage, there's a lot of drivers at play there. There's the resources and there's health literacy and then there's also health in that particular person's body. So this was about the treatment that was given or was it about the outcomes for the patient? We looked at both and you're absolutely right. Understanding socioeconomic disadvantage is complex and it has many different components. And you know the metric that we used was one based on where you live. So it wasn't something that we could apply to each individual, but nevertheless, where you live has often been shown to be a pretty good marker of socioeconomic advantage and disadvantage. And so there are many factors that play into this, and many of them are structural. They relate to the environment that people live and work in, and it's things like availability of healthcare, it's things like health literacy. Many people living in socioeconomically disadvantaged areas don't have English as their first language, and so understanding what it is that they need and sort of demand Ending the best treatments is something that may be a challenge for such people and the ability for the health services to provide everything that is required also varies. 
by location. We certainly did find that things that should happen in hospital, being the procedures, the bypasses, the stents, the opening up of the arteries, seemed to be where there was the biggest shortfall for people in socially disadvantaged areas. But what you're saying is diabetes, we know that's a risk factor. The people who've come in and they've gone, okay, this person's got diabetes, let's make sure we take that into consideration. Are you saying if we can decide what other risk factors are, then we can be really intentional about responding to that? Yes, that's absolutely the case. It was pleasing to see that for people with diabetes, there was an appropriate increase in the level of care provided in recognition of the higher risk that such people have of adverse outcomes. But for the socioeconomically disadvantaged areas, and in particular, things that are happening in hospital, this was not the case. It's probably because such areas have greater demands on the health services, but it also does indicate somewhere where it looks like there is something that we can do to try and improve outcomes because there certainly does seem to be some sort of shortfall here in the services that are being provided for people with heart attacks. So you're a researcher, you're also a clinician. What are the frustrations that you're finding in this space when you're in the field? Well, I suppose one of the frustrations is that whilst researchers always like to find something new, there is something here that has been now found for many, many, many years, and that is this increased risk of adverse outcomes for socially disadvantaged areas. There does seem to have been some response, at least in terms of providing the appropriate medication for people, the sort of medication that we know reduces risks afterwards, that that does seem to be being recognised as being an important component and something that can be done as an extra. But I think we really still have got quite a long way to genuinely recognise the health impost of socioeconomic disadvantage. The focus always seems to be on, you know, your blood pressure, your cholesterol. But coming from a socioeconomically disadvantaged background is just as much of a personal risk factor for poor outcomes as is a biological condition such as diabetes or high blood pressure or high cholesterol. That's an opportunity where we can improve the services that we provide. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Professor Jonathan Shaw is Deputy Director, Clinical and Population Health at Melbourne's Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute. And as climate change progresses, it's becoming less of a theoretical threat and more immediate and apparent. Heat waves, flooding and other extreme events clearly have physical health effects, but they also have a mental health impact. Now a group of researchers has tried to quantify this mental health toll of climate change in an attempt to manage it. Here's Rebecca Patrick. There hasn't necessarily been a nationwide study of this topic. So we wanted to look at the general population and whether there was mental health impacts. So we looked at eco-anxiety. We tested for PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder and also pre-trauma. And so we did a general survey across the nation of Australia and around 5,500 people participated. PTSD is a pretty serious mental illness. Is that the extent of the sort of damage that climate change is doing? What we found in our study is that the majority of Australians, uh, around 55%, reported having a direct experience of a climate change-related event, such as a bushfire or flood. And one in four people in our survey met the criteria for post-traumatic stress. 
are these people getting the treatment that they need when they are experiencing these symptoms? We asked about mental health seeking behaviours. People didn't necessarily perceive mental health care as something they were tapping into, but those people experiencing eco-anxiety were more likely to be seeking mental health supports. Which groups were most at risk across the nation? Young people are experiencing significant rates of eco-anxiety in particular compared to older age groups with significant impacts on cognitive and functional impairment. So what that means is it's affecting their work life, their family and their social life. So these are people who might not necessarily have had their house flooded, they're not on the front line of the climate change effects, but they're still feeling it very keenly that it's happening and that there's not really much that they can do about it. Sense of powerlessness and hopelessness. We also gave people the opportunity to sort of voice their concerns and the qualitative data demonstrated some frustration, some sense of hopelessness with the non-actions that we're taking in Australia. And so not all of this qualifies as a pathology or a diagnosis, but there's quite strong eco-emotions ranging right through to what I suggested before, which was PTSD and more clinically significant outcomes. So, you know, people are having mental health responses across the spectrum of experiences. But like you say, it's affecting their ability to live a normal life. Climate change anxiety specifically, it's driven by something that either feels completely beyond our control or something that feels like it perhaps could be within our control if people would care enough about it. How do you sort of grapple with that kind of anxiety? The top three individual coping strategies, the self-care, we could call it, is becoming informed about problems and solutions. So using knowledge to kind of get a sense of what's happening and what we can do to make a difference. So about 72% of people are doing that. People are also using nature or viewing or visiting natural environments to get a little bit of relief from the stress and concern. And also people are taking charge of the situation by changing their own lifestyle and doing things that are more sustainable. And then we've got others that are getting involved in sort of social activities relating to climate action. So for example, participating in debates, participating in protests or working with others on climate issues. That's really good at the individual level, but do you have recommendations at the country level of how we should be responding to the scale of anxiety that you've reported? I suppose the study was one of the first of its kind in Australia and to date we haven't really uncovered the scale and extent of the potential mental health impacts. So it's largely unrecognised and unseen. So it's really critical that health professionals recognise this mental health burden and have the tools in place to assess, monitor and treat mental health issues arising from climate change. And I think because it's across the spectrum from not clinical right through to the clinical outcome, so we need to reorient. I suppose, our health services to respond to the range of mental health presentations that we may see now and into the future. So what's the call to action for people from what you're reporting here? For the mental health sector and medical professions, there's some really low-hanging fruit in terms of interventions that we could start to foster. You may have heard of green and social prescribing, structured activities in nature. So there's mental health benefits of accessing local nature. There's co-benefits for mental health and potential benefits for the environment as people really learn to love their natural environment. So taking some of the psychological care outside it may, may underline, be really helpful for young people. There's also some really brilliant existing networks and resources. We have an organisation in Australia called Psychology for a Safe Climate and they've got a list of climate-aware practitioners and they do workshops on climate, grief, etc. 
for individuals. Again, taking climate action is actually good for you. It's what psychologists call active coping. You could get involved in local groups such as an environmental volunteering opportunity with young people experiencing significant rates of eco-anxiety. Parents and families may like to access resources as well. So the Australian Psychological Association have developed a really brilliant guide for parents about the climate crisis and how to have conversations with young people that are validating and supportive. Rebecca, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. Dr. Rebecca Patrick is co-lead of the Health Nature Sustainability Research Group at Deakin University. And Norman, the temperature check survey that the paper is based on was actually developed with ABC Science in 2020 as part of the Carbon Counter Fight for Planet A project that we did. Oh, we need to tell News Limited that we do something useful from time <laughs> to time. And it's what, what's, other, what's also interesting there is just the fact that if you're out in nature itself, it is actually good for your psychological health as are mm. green spaces. So how we plan our cities is just critical there. Really interesting, Tegan. Well, that's the health report for another week. I'm Tegan Taylor. Good to hear it. I'm Norman Swan. See you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.